Welcome, welcome, welcome to Rob's Reliability Project. I'm Rob Kalvaroski. This week, there's no music. There won't be any plugs because I have a serious message for you. I have a serious message about mental health. I have a serious message about chasing happiness, and I want to share my story with you. If you followed my newsletter, you'll know that earlier this fall, I started getting coaching with Susan Hobson from Elite High Performance Coaching. I went to her because I wanted to get tools, strategies, and processes to turn this podcast into a business so I could expand my message and help more of you around the world. Well, I haven't gotten that so far. What I have gotten, though, is a deep spotlight on myself. We've turned the spotlight in on me and on my mind and on my feelings and on who I am. And a lot of these questions I had no insight on. I remember one of our first sessions, Susan asked me, Rob, who are you? And my answer was pretty typical. It was, I'm Rob Kalvaroski. I'm a reliability engineer. I'm an MIT graduate. I'm a water polo player. And she said to me, she said, Rob, that's not who you are. That's what you've done. That's your resume. And she challenged me to answer that question with values, with passions. And I couldn't answer it. I'm 31 years old and I don't know who I am. So before we get into who I am, and my challenge is for you. It'll be helpful for me to tell you what I've done. So here's my origin story. I was born June 4th, 1988 in Ottawa, Ontario, Canada. My dad was an economist his entire career with the federal government. My mom is also an economist, but she worked in statistical marketing in telecom before statistical marketing was a thing. My sister has a master's degree in neuroscience. So you could say we're a pretty intelligent family. As a kid, I had lots of energy, just like I still do now. I was always bouncing from activity to activity. But nothing really clicked for me until I was nine years old and I went to a free trial for water polo and a light switch flicked in my brain. This was the sport for me. This was for me. I got pretty serious about water polo pretty quickly. By the time I was 13, we were provincial champions. And I set my goal, I set my sights on winning a national championship and, and making national teams. 
by the time I was 15, we won the U16 national championships. It should have been the greatest day of my life. I remember sitting on the bleachers, holding the trophy because I was the captain of the team. And we were taking the team picture. And I had a hard time smiling. I felt lost. I felt confused. I felt a feeling inside me that I felt many times since then. I felt empty. It didn't feel like I thought it would. It felt like I should be on top of the world. It felt like I should be happy. And I wasn't. And so like any high performer, what do you do? You bury that feeling and you set your sights on a bigger goal. Maybe it wasn't hard enough. Maybe I didn't achieve as much as I should have. Maybe I need to shoot bigger. So I set my sights on making national teams. I was on the U16 national team and I was on the U18 national team. Neither of those had any pinnacle moments like, like the championship did. And so the feelings just felt right to progress to the next goal. When I was in grade 11, after seeing the state of water polo in Ontario, I decided I wanted to play in the NCAA. I emailed some coaches in the NCAA and I was lucky enough to get a phone call back from the head coach at MIT. Now at MIT, there's no athletic scholarships. There's no academic scholarships. It's understood that you're elite. It's understood that you're a good student and that you're also doing something else. When I got into MIT, there was a 2% international student acceptance rate. I was one of that 2%. I arrived on campus and things started going well for me. My first tournament, we played University of California, Berkeley. We, they were one of the top teams at the, in the country at the time. We lost by 20 goals. MIT, we scored two goals. I scored one, and I drew the penalty shot for the second. I was feeling pretty good. I mean, we weren't winning, but I was playing well. The first round of midterms came, and I discovered quickly that I was a C student. And then another switch flicked off in my head. The switch was no longer be the best in the pool. The switch turned to be the best in the classroom. Because I always love challenges. So I set my sights on attaining straight A's and, and graduating MIT. It took me a year and a half. And fall of junior year, I finished the semester during water polo season with straight A's in my, in my classes. I learned how to study. I learned how to work. I learned how to achieve in the classroom. I continued on that path. 
I joined many different things at MIT, the traders at MIT club, a financial trading club that we would we traveled twice to to competitions. I helped work on a startup that was looking at taking pictures in the dark and using an algorithm to scrub them to make them li lighter. I was a member of the Delta Upsilon fraternity. I played varsity water polo for four years. I was an academic All-American three times. Fast forward to June 4th, 2010. I achieved the next big goal in my life. I graduated from MIT with a bachelor's degree in mechanical engineering and a minor in management. This should have been another one of those peak moments in my life. Coincidentally, June 4th, 2010 is also my 22nd birthday, and that feeling came back. I didn't have a job lined up for after graduation, and I had lost all goals that I had. I walked across that stage, and I had that feeling come back. What's next? Maybe, was this not hard enough? How come this is not making me feel happy? How come this is not making me feel fulfilled? After graduation, I was unemployed for six months. And then I started working as an economist at the same job I worked as an intern. We were doing cost-benefit analysis on large infrastructure projects like roads, bridges, psychiatric hospitals. A lot of the skills I use today in my role as an asset manager, I use, I learned there. How to benefit safety, how to, how to quantify safety incidents, how to quantify environmental incidents, how to quantify social benefit. I'd recommend you learn how to do those as your career and a reliability. I worked there for a few months and you might be asking, you know, Rob, like, how'd you get into reliability? Was it designed? Was it a plan? Did you have a thought behind it? No. It's actually a funny story. I didn't have a plan to get into reliability. I didn't even, I had never considered a career in maintenance. I had learned two elements about reliability during college. I don't even think MIT offers reliability engineering. The first one, we learned Weibull analysis as part of a beam bending and failure course in statics. I also learned some of the CRE type math in a manufacturing course. That's it. So how did I get into reliability? Well, I took a friend of mine to the Ottawa 67's hockey game. And her friend's friend worked at tech at the time in mining. I was unemployed and she told me that they're always hiring engineers and I should send her my resume. And I did. Five months later, I was a reliability engineer. I worked for tech for two and a half years. 
as a reliability engineer. I learned a lot about mining. I learned a lot about reliability. I saved them tens of millions of dollars. I could have saved them hundreds. But I didn't have the skill set that we talk so much about on this show. I didn't have the skill set to talk to people from the perspective that they're coming from. I didn't have the perspective about how to change culture, how to change behavior. It felt like I was running into a wall for two and a half years. To me, I came out of MIT, I had an ego, I had confidence. I was looking at data. I thought this stuff was reality. There was no way to argue with data. There's no way to argue with reality. And yet people didn't see it that way. There was a lot of resistance to change. And not only did I not have the technical skill set to convince them, I didn't have the emotional skill set to deal with it. After about a year at tech, I got depressed. And there was a lot of shame around it. For about nine months after I was depressed, I welled up inside. I brought, I just came inwards. I didn't tell my parents. I didn't tell my friends. And then eventually I talked to my friend who's a social worker and and she told me to, to go to the doctor to get help. I went to the hospital. It was eight o'clock in the morning on a Saturday. I told the ER doctor that I needed help, that I was depressed. I don't think she was ready for it. She printed a questionnaire off the internet and I filled it out. She diagnosed me with major depressive disorder. She wrote me a prescription for an SSRI and sent me home. With the advice that you needed to monitor yourself. You, you needed to monitor your mood and come back if it got worse. That started the worst two weeks of my life. I went from sleeping seven, eight hours a night to not sleeping, to sleeping under four. My mood went from depressed, suicidal to even lower. I went from being able to swim or work out or run every day to not being able to get much off the couch. After two weeks, I had a falling out with one of my friends because I had been dumping my emotional problems on them. And they said they couldn't take it anymore. And a, f a switch flipped in my head. I called my parents. And I was really at the end of my rope. They told me to go back to the hospital. And to ask for a, basically a prescription for short-term disability. I did, and I flew back to Ottawa that night. I got a new prescription for SSRIs. 
and they contacted the local psychiatrist in group therapy. I spent two weeks at home in Ottawa, and then I returned back to Fernie. I started seeing the psychiatrist. I started going to group therapy, and nothing really clicked for me. Nothing really helped. I tried five different medications, two for sleeping and three for for the brain. And after about 10 sessions with the psychiatrist, he turned to me and said, Rob, all you got to do is get a new job and move cities. Basically, I had already figured that out. And I said I didn't need to see him anymore. Looking back at it with the perspective I have now, I realized that that's putting a Band-Aid on a broken bone. That's doing shallow cause analysis and firing the operator when you needed some procedures and you needed training. About six months after he told me that, I moved. I started a company. It failed. And then I moved to Edmonton and started working at Fluid Life. I was learning at an increased rate. I had never worked much in lubrication before. It made me happier. I saw, I, I gained a big perspective on reliability programs across North America. I would go to sites from mining to manufacturing to power plants, even shipping vessels, and see how their reliability and lubrication programs were going and to teach them about different things. It gave me perspective. It was a good experience. But after a while, those feelings crept back. In 2017, I went to Knoxville, Tennessee to visit my friend, my roommate from college. He was working at a cancer clinic. And talking to him, I realized that he was learning at a much higher rate outside of school than I was. And something clicked in me. Something clicked in my head that said, hey, Rob, you know, instead of feeling sorry for yourself and instead of feeling depressed all the time, start learning. Start pushing yourself. That's where you feel good. So I started doing that. I started getting into entrepreneurship podcasts. I started reading. I started getting back into it. And one of those podcasts was Gary Vaynerchuk, which actually was the catalyst for this show. Late 2017, early 2018, Gary Vaynerchuk said that everybody needed a podcast because it would be great for their business. I didn't have anything to sell, and, and right now I still don't have anything to sell. But what I realized was I should start a podcast for three reasons. The first reason was it would increase my learning, my learning speed. Instead of me having to go through reliability books that I don't 
read, I could have the authors on the show and just ask them what I wanted to know. The second thing was, I could share my knowledge with you. I could share my knowledge and I could share my, my passions and I could share my journey with you. And basically, until this day where we're about 80, we're more than 80 episodes in, I hadn't really talked much about myself on this show. There was a lot of shame around it. I felt like, I felt fear. I felt like you might judge me. I felt like maybe I wasn't relatable. I felt shame because I work in this industry and yet I don't feel like I'm happy. I don't feel like I'm connected. And it's taken me a while to talk about it. It's taken me a while to really push this through. And basically, it's taken me a coach to push me to do it. Now, sharing that knowledge with you is important to me. I had done this a lot throughout my life. When I was in the pool playing water polo, I would always talk a lot. I would always teach my, my teammates whatever I could do. I became a, a water polo coach for a while, volunteering, helping, helping kids learn the game. In college, I used to hold weekly chalk talks, spreading the knowledge. At some of my jobs, I used to talk about reliability to some of the new engineers. It's something that I value. The third reason I started a podcast was to open up opportunities for me. I felt stagnated. I felt like I was coming to a wall again and that I needed to move cities and change jobs because that's all I knew. I had never looked at myself in the way that I can now. I didn't have the skill set to process what I've seen. It all just felt like I would have to get a new job and move cities every couple years forever. I struggled with purpose. I struggled with my self-identity. I struggled with confidence. I struggled with fear. I struggled with being able to tell you who I am. Fast forward to now. Back to 2019. We're still here with the podcast. We're still here. Now I work as an asset manager. That's my origin story. That's what I've done. That's my resume. 
So, who am I? Who am I? I'm Rob Kalvaroski. I work in reliability. I graduated from MIT. I play water polo. I battle with depression. But who am I? That's not who I am. I'm a progressionist. I value challenging myself. I value continuous learning. I value reaching my full potential. I value interacting with like-minded people. I value honesty, integrity. And most importantly, I value helping people. That's who I am. I want to talk a little bit about mental health before I, I challenge you and I hope to inspire you. If you're out there and you're struggling with mental health, you're struggling with, with depression, you're struggling with suicidal thoughts, I've been there. And I'm not going to give you any bullshit platitudes because I had those. People told those to me. And they're not helpful. They, they used to make me angry. They used to make me frustrated. And they didn't get it. Suicide is selfish. It's always darkest before the dawn. Give me a break. If you're out there and you're struggling, I urge you to ask someone for help. There's text crisis lines. There's call crisis lines. And I don't like the word crisis because you don't actually have to be suicidal to call them. You could just need someone to talk to. You could just need someone to text to. Because maybe you just don't feel like you can open up to your friends or your family. Someone will be on the other end of that phone. And they may be able to help you. They may be able to share some of your pain. And if your experience is anything like mine, the first person you ask probably won't be able to help you. Maybe even the second person or the third or even the fourth and fifth. But I urge you to keep asking. Because eventually you'll find someone. Just like I did. And hopefully. They can change your life. For people out there. Who aren't struggling. But maybe you suspect a family member, a friend, a colleague is. I urge you to talk to them. They may not be able to open up to you. They may not be able to tell you that they're depressed. It took me a while to do it. And at work, I buried it. 
because I was ashamed. It's not something you talk about in the workplace. And that's partly one of the reasons why I wanted to do this show is we need to talk about it more in reliability. It's okay to struggle. It's okay to be depressed. A lot of us go through it. I urge you to talk to them. I urge you to see if you can help them. Whether that's, and and if you have that level of relationship and they're at a point where they're able to ask for help, I urge you to, if you can, drive them to the doctor or drive them to therapy or, you know, really be an active person in their life. But if they're not at that stage, because sometimes it takes time, I urge you to just be empathetic. Don't offer them platitudes. Don't try to solve the problem. Don't tell them to exercise. Be sympathetic. Offer a shoulder for them to lean on. Offer sympathy and try to shoulder some of their burden. Because honestly, sometimes they just need to talk. Sometimes they just need to unburden the the pain that they're feeling. And having someone there who just doesn't say anything, who just supports them, that's really what, what we want. So, we talked a little bit about depression. We talked a little bit about mental health. We talked about my origin story and who I am. And now... As I'm recording this and as this is being released, we're pretty close to 2020. And in, and in North America, we denote 2020 as having perfect vision. And I want to challenge you and I want to inspire you today. I want you to turn that 2020 vision on yourself. And I want you to look inwards instead of outwards. I want you to stop chasing happiness from the outside. Chasing that new car, chasing that new house, chasing that new promotion, chasing that new job. And I want to challenge you to turn that 2020 vision within you. Learn who you are. Learn what fulfills you. And I want you to lean into that. And I want you to lean into whatever lights you up. And why my origin story is important is I've been chasing happiness for 31 years. It's given me conventional measures of success. I graduated from one of the top engineering schools in the world. I played sports at a high level. And yet it also landed me up in the hospital, landed me in a psychiatrist's office, and gave me years of struggle, of pain, of depression. 
And as I look back on 2020 with 2020 vision, I realize that it's an addiction. Nothing would have ever been big enough. I was a runaway train, and the only way that train ends is to derail. I could have gotten bigger. I could have done more. But I would have got what I always got. I would have felt always how I felt. And so now I'm starting the process of turning that 2020 vision on myself. Two or three weeks ago, I wouldn't have been able to tell you who I was, what my values were, what I'm passionate about. Three weeks ago, I wouldn't have been able to, to even begin to look at myself in any way that had any meaning at all. And now I'm starting to turn that 2020 vision onto the future. I'm starting to turn that 2020 vision forward instead of back because my origin story is written. The past is finished. But now I want to change the future. Instead of falling into the future like I fell into my entire life, I want to choose my future. And I want to choose it in a way that fulfills me. And so I want to challenge you. I want to challenge you to look inwards. I want to challenge you to learn who you are. I want to challenge you to be able to tell me what your values are and what you're passionate about. And I want, you to, I want to challenge you to lean into that and to become passionate, to light that fire inside you. And I know it's difficult to ask. And I know that three weeks ago, I wouldn't even have been able to start if I was listening to this. But what I can guarantee you and what I can tell you about 2020 is that as I learn tools and strategies and learn about myself, I'm going to bring those tools and strategies to you. I'm going to bring those tools and strategies to help you look inwards and to help you understand yourself and to help you on your path to finding fulfillment. And I hope to inspire you to do that with me, to come with me. I'll share with you more about myself. As I learn about it, I'll share those tools with you. And together, we'll go from chasing happiness 
to finding fulfillment. Happy Holidays. Merry Christmas. I appreciate every single one of you. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you all next week.